Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Austin Lebetkin. Austin is an autistic artist, aerospace software engineer, and inventor. Austin has synesthesia, a perceptual phenomenon in which stimuli that would typically stimulate one sense can activate other senses at the same time. This has allowed him to create unique and accessible art experiences, some even meant to make people touch and hear colors. Austin uses his art to spread awareness of various mental conditions. He has already earned a patent as a software engineer and has filed another patent for the first human brain computer interface that would allow a fully paralyzed individual to type and control a computer. In today's conversation, we discuss how Austin's synesthesia influences his art, his series about mental health, the future of art and machine learning, some of Austin's inventions, including a sensory overload simulator, accessible technology, misconceptions about autism that he wants to break through his art, and advice for other autistic artists. In this episode, discover what's possible when art is in the eye of the beholder, and a few other senses. To learn more about Austin and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Austin Lubetkin. Hi, Austin. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for coming on the show today. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with a brief introduction. Hi, my name is Austin Lovetkin. I'm currently in Los Angeles, California. I'm a software engineer with Northrop Grumman. I'm also an inventor and an artist. Great. And you are also autistic. Yes, I am on the autism spectrum. Do you prefer to be referred to as person first or does it matter for you? I don't think I really think about it. I think that's kind of like newer than when I was kind of forming my sort of idea about it, the kind of concept person first, like kind of became a newer concept than when I was kind of, you know, I was raised with the like Asperger's and that's not being sort of a term. But I don't really, I don't really view it so much as like an identity either way. So person first, not person first doesn't really sort of matter to me personally. I very much go with the flow if that makes sense. Yeah. Definitely got it. So when did you first learn about your autism? I had a mother who spent some time working with autistic adults and I had a father who was a doctor. And I had some early intervention from when I was, time was, uh, when I was younger. I don't think I had an official diagnosis to middle school, but I think my, my family knew from a younger age and I was receiving like, treatment and therapy from a younger age. Um, that really helped, I think. Okay. So you had a good experience with your early intervention? I believe so. I think, you know, where I see my, 
myself now versus where I saw myself then is very different. I was much lower functioning when I was starting out. Um, I had a lot more trouble with emotional regulation and a lot more trouble with filtering. I think really the part where my emotional intelligence and my intellectual intelligence didn't really catch up to each other until like late into college. So I didn't really sort of even out till then. But for most of my life, there was a big gap between my emotional age and sort of my intellectual age. And I think there's also there's some really good milestones. I think there's a time when you're a young autistic child where you can get really into something. And for me, I got really into art. And I think that was to my benefit socially, where I could talk to people on and on about art and people would actually listen, have conversations with me, and that helped me grow socially, where I think a lot of other people in that situation, depending what if they're into something more niche, like dinosaurs, for example, that can be a social barrier to some people where they kind of get turned off from conversations and it kind of creates a disconnect. That's something that I, I fortunately benefit from and grateful for and I'm very aware of. Hmm. How does autism affect your everyday life now? You know, I, I see a lot in my creativity. I think my creativity is over when inventing my art, but I think the clearest example is, you know, I would when I was in college, I take these entrepreneurship classes, and every time I'd come up with an idea, the first thing I you do is type into Google, and every single person in the class was neurotypical would type their idea, and there'd be a dozen results of the exact thing they'd come up with. But every time I'd come up with something it basically didn't exist, which just comes down to that difference in perspective. The history of seeing the world from a slightly different perspective accumulated into these set of ideas and things that would create that were significantly different than I think the mainstream. And the empathy of that perspective, I think, really has helped me a lot with uh, my creativity as well. Great. And you're also a synesthete. Did I say that right? Yeah. You experience uh, synesthesia. I have synesthesia. Yeah. So colors and emotions and brain chemistry. You see a lot of the colors in my art, which um, is kind of a color palette that kind of kind of analogs to it. The, the reality is that the colors I see with my synesthesia are kind of outside the palette. They're kind of like after images of colors. Like when you look at a bright color and you close your eyes and look away and you see sort of an after image of mind, that's kind of what those colors kind of look like to me. But I, I try to capture that sort of the, the energy and the way they move in my MR. It's actually interesting where I can kind of see the way my autism represents itself through my synesthesia when I'm looking at my brain chemistry and when it kind of tries to organize things into more uh, polar sort of structures, I'm trying to move out those grays and trying to organize them to more extremes. I think that sort of that tendency of my brain and my brain chemistry is what at its fundamental core would be my autism. Hmm. Interesting. So how does the synesthesia manifest for you? Because sometimes it can be different for different people, obviously, right? For sure. Anytime there's, it kind of sticks to flat surfaces like walls, but anytime I look at them, if I look at the sky, it's not just like a plain surface. It's kind of like excited with all this energy. Like It's like a stack on a TV screen. When I'm looking at it, I'm more aware of specific parts of my like when I'm looking at it, I'm feeling it at the same time. It's kind of a connected experience. So as I'm looking at specific parts of it, I'm feeling or aware, feeling more parts of my emotions, my brain chemistry, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So will the same wall always elicit the same kind of emotion or does it just change? It has nothing to do with the walls. It's just, it's all my own sort of brain chemistry that's overlaid in my visual, but I kind of restrict itself to walls. I kind of, there's enough details and stuff in my environment. I kind of don't see it. 
but it, the wall doesn't have anything to do with it. Okay, so it's just a, a flat surface. Yeah, it's kind of like six to the background, if that makes sense. Interesting. Could you give an example? I think the clearest way is to kind of look at my art. I mean, if you can pull up an example or two of some of the colors, the color palette I have. I have several different color palettes I use. I have a white palette. I have the sort of blues I'm known for, but, you know, different sort of emotional states I have. I'm able to sort of capture them in that art. And the interesting thing is a lot of these paintings I've done that represent my synesthesia, I've then trained an AI to basically recreate my synesthesia where it can basically learn from those paintings and then I can feed it new photographs and it can recreate what I would see with my synesthesia although other people see it which is kind of cool yeah so I'm looking at your Instagram now which your handle is Boca Ost yep I grew up in Boca Raton I'm Austin uh B-O-C-A-A-U-S-T right so if anyone listening wants to follow along as you describe which one do you want to talk about Sure. Let me pull it up real quick and I uh, can follow along with you. So I want to talk about my mental health series. This actually doesn't really represent my synesthesia so well, but I think it's a really good example of what I can do with my art, my work with AI as well. So this was six different famous artists. Here's one of them. And each one of the pieces represents a different mental illness from the perspective of another famous artist. Mm-hmm. So I, I did um, the piece I just showed was and Sal Mondrian and representing obsessive compulsive disorder. I had a piece by Gustav Klimt that represented dissociative identity disorder, a piece by Picasso that represented depression. And all these are completely original pieces that I made using AI that I basically learned from the artist and was able to create new pieces in style, giving them new prompts to kind of represent each sort of mental illness. I had a piece by a Russian artist where I represent angoraphobia. I had a piece by Dolly, and that represented bipolar disorder. And last, I had a piece by Van Gogh that represented post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I, I, this Dolly one stands out to me because I live in Spain, and I've been to the Dolly Museum. Oh, there's a, there's another Dolly Museum in, uh, I think it's Tampa, Florida, near where I went to college. Ah, cool. So, yeah, this one that kind of depicts bipolar disorder, could you talk about how you transform the original piece. So there's no original piece that's transforming. It's 100% brand new. I looked at the elements. I kind of came up with the composition. Each one of those elements, I was like, okay, these are examples of the Dolly clocks making a new Dolly clock in that style. Uh-huh. And then I, okay. I created a brand new one. Kind of. it's, it's not kind of like collage, basically, from his past paintings or like transferring one of his paintings to create something new. Each element is kind of brand new and completely original. Mm-hmm. So here there are some dancing images on top of the clock. Yeah. So, I mean, at the top of the clock, you're kind of dancing. And then in the shadow of the, the melting clock, you're kind of like asleep on, you know, your depressive state. So it's kind of the cycles going up and down, you know, kind of representing that through the lens of time, which Dolly is famous for as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how about this agoraphobia one? Sure. So that was actually was a series of pieces. So I kind of wanted to look at some of the, the Russian abstract pieces and the way they use these blocks in a space. You kind of like you see them in real life, a lot of these abstract pieces are huge. They create the sense of space where you kind of just wrap up in them, you kind of like fall into them. 
I think that was kind of representative of what we could kind of capture with that, with agoraphobia. So I tried to represent that feeling in the pieces as well. So I kind of created a series of pieces that use that block and that abstraction to kind of recreate that feeling. Mm -hmm. Do you have one specific to autism? I actually had a whole autism series I did before this as well. Autism isn't in this series, but I did a whole autism series where I did a portraits. I really talk about as much now because he uses the puzzle piece symbolism, but I did portraits of famous people on the autism spectrum. Okay. Is that here in your gallery as well? Yeah, that would be further back, but it's still on my Instagram. So like, here's a self-portrait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's um, different famous people on the autism spectrum. So does the synesthesia come out here in what you were describing before with the vibrant colors? To an extent, that autism series is using that same sort of color palette. That's kind of my signature. So that's one example of that with this series. Some series, I kind of do my own color palette. Some series, I, I you know, experiment a bit. But most of them, I have this sort of signature color palette that you see in the autism series. And that's representative of what you would see with the synesthesia. All right. This is really fascinating. Um, another interesting one we could talk about real quick. It was just, I think it was like a three or four part series of video pieces kind of representing the feelings of sexual assault, which is interesting. But I do a lot of collaborations with different artists as well, but that would be further back on my Instagram as well. There's one with like a butterfly and one with one's back and like they're a bruised lip and kind of creating this sort of interesting composition. Yeah. So could you describe for people who are listening? Sure. So I, I collaborated with a friend of mine who's an artist and she did the portraits of like the paintings of the, the actual features. And I create sort of these abstract compositions and these animated pieces around that, trying to create the whole book, capture their feeling. There's different bruises and, and you know, a, a bloody eye, but they're also, I mean, it's kind of telling the experience of the body and the trauma and kind of and bringing awareness of all that and using symbolism like the butterfly, you know, with trafficking, but also symbolism like just the, the dreamlike state of it as well and some of the experience of that. It was also interesting where I got to collaborate where this artist I worked with had this really unique painting style. I was able to actually recreate that style for one of the pieces as well and carry that through. Um, it was a cool use of the AI and it worked really well for that. Mm-hmm. So could you talk about how you use the AI? Sure. So I use several different AIs. There's one I gave an example of where I am training it with my own paintings, where that's one where I'm able to recreate that color signature across a lot of my pieces, where it's basing, it's learning from my past paintings, the colors I've done. I create sort of a composition that may not have the finished version of the colors I had at the start of them. And then I would kind of paint over them and give me an idea of the, the finished version of the colors of my layer and collage that to get the, the finished version and kind of skip a couple steps to get further along. But you're using digital art to produce it? Sometimes. I mean, I've, I haven't really gone to that. So there's other areas for that as well. Um, some cases I need new elements, which is where I will use machine learning. Sometimes it'll be based off of a word prompt where I'll need like a specific butterfly. Sometimes it'll be based off of generating off of series images. Like when I need a specific face, I can train with a set, a series of faces to create a brand new one. I can imagine different compositions generationally. 
most cases, a lot of these elements come out very, very unfinished. And then I basically have to take them and collage them together digitally. I also work with my own photography as well. I collaborate with different artists who maybe paint, draw, and incorporate those elements as well. Okay, super cool. So tell us about your art journey. How did you start? You said you were interested in art as a kid. How did you go from that to working with machine learning? Sure. So I had a mother who was very, very supportive for one thing. You know, she kind of gave me sort of an art therapy experience, which I'm really appreciative of. And it showed me how to express my emotion through art, which is a huge step in my journey towards, you know, becoming the whole person I am today. And I also had a mother who was very supportive of philanthropy and she kind of helped me, you know, donate some pieces to charity auctions. I was getting better with my paintings, getting more exposure, pushing me to do more galleries and shows. And I started from a very young age. And I've continued to do galleries and art shows and work with different charities and still do a lot of philanthropy with that as well. Later in life, I actually, it was not even until high school. I, I shall back up a bit. So I, I did a lot of physical art, but there was a lot of stuff where I couldn't physically keep up with it. Like I would see a painting in my head, but I couldn't make it as fast as I could draw it or execute on it. My skills weren't there. And the speed at which I could hold the thought versus actually physically doing it, there was a mismatch. So I actually moved more toward digital art, like Photoshop, where I can actually create more of the speed I can imagine. And more recently, the tools have gone even faster. So I've, my creative process has really exploded from there, where I can kind of create almost instantly. The iterations I can do on the process have really grown tremendously. But in addition, I, I started doing more programming in high school and actually studied computer science in college. And that uh, you know, I started developing my own tools. I actually started specializing in an area called computer vision, where it kind of went the other way. My experience with art helped me be a better programmer, where I could train better AIs to understand what's in an image using my sort of artistic perspective to better train them. Mm-hmm. Cool. So is machine learning a type of art or is it a application or is it a software? So machine learning at its core, what it means is it's looking at past things and it's it's making a machine learning step where it basically tries to evaluate something, does is this better or worse, and then makes a decision and kind of iterates off of that and learns from it. But it's you know it's looking from past data to build something new is the core of what machine learning is. AI can be a lot of things, it can make decisions, it's really about and, you know, some things are more an algorithm versus AI, but AI is different from machine learning. And then there's, why well, I, I use machine learning very generally, but there's a lot of very specific deep tools people have developed using machine learning. I call machine learning, but I'm referring to those specific tools. Okay, got it. So, yeah, I just looked it up. I guess it's a branch of AI in computer science. Yeah, it's all kind of connected, but machine learning is about the, is the elements that kind of look to the past and kind of learns from it and... That machine learning step is where it kind of makes a decision. Is this better or worse? And kind of iterates on it. Mm-hmm. And where do you think the future lies with machine learning and art? I, mean, I think that's a really interesting thing. I kind of would want to transition to more talking about my patent because I think my patent is kind of has some interesting applications to the future of AI as well. That's kind of the direction I see it going is, you know, what kind of is an extension of my work on my patent. Mm-hmm. Right. So as a software engineer, you create accessible technology. I've created accessible technology, but I've also, I create a lot of different kinds of things. And I actually have one patent that was granted, another patent that was pending. Okay. So yeah, tell us about your, your patent. 
Sure. Um, so the one that's more relevant to what I'm talking about with AI is the first effective human brain-computer interface that allows someone to type and control a computer with their brainwaves. And what's really unique about it is it's just brainwaves, doesn't require eye blinks, physical interaction. And that would mean be the first solution where someone who fully walked in or paralyzed could type or control a computer. I think it would have huge implications for end-of-life care, things like that where people could actually communicate where their options weren't really there. And they're like millions in funding and universities and no one's delivered an effective solution. People are talking about implanting sensors, really high cost sensors, whereas mine is a fusion between a thought process and a low tech solution, which allows someone to just put on a headset and very easily type, um, which is something that's not really seen right now in the market, which I'm really excited about. That patent's still pending as well. In addition, there's some really interesting applications for AI. You know, when you're sort of typing, filling out an email, there's sort of autofill on the AI. Mm-hmm. Working kind of, you know, that's an area called natural language processing. But there, even more than that, there's different areas you can find, you can find that with machine learning, with the computer vision, where as people are typing and doing certain tasks on a computer, the idea is we both go from processing something on the screen to completing the task faster than they could physically do the task so they process it mentally and then the computer would instantly complete the task and be able to accelerate human computer interaction which i think has interesting applications for art you know being able to record your dreams there's some really interesting applications for art in that area as well Hmm. and music too right i could see that kind of overlapping for sure that was actually the first prototype actually goes back to my grandfather had had a stroke, so he's passed along at this point, but he had a stroke and he was always very, very musical and he lost his ability to play the piano. So I built a piano app on the iPad that will let him play the piano virtually using his brainwaves when he couldn't physically do it. That was the first prototype and, and that was kind of something you learn and figure out some of the process of what later became the actual typing keyboard with the brainwaves. So, wow, that's so interesting. I play piano, so this is kind of a special interest of mine. When I was doing some research on your work, I found that, the Mind Piano Simulator. It was interesting as well because, you know, I I did some work on it, but I was kind of thinking maybe it would be more like an art therapy thing and sort of like that. So I kind of just put the code out there so people could take a look at it and run their own version of it. Because if it was going to be a therapy thing, I didn't want to kind of release it, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So. How do all of these technologies work when you say that it's connected to brainwaves? Do people just need to think about something? You need an actual headset. It would mean EEG headset, electroencephalography, and there's actually commercial headsets people can use. They've got much more affordable. I've seen people actually 3D print headsets and, and impact sensors. So it's they've become much more affordable. They're not like thousands of dollars. You can get something for hundred or under a hundred dollars now at this point, which is really great. Mm-hmm. And then there's different areas as well. And you kind of have to, at this point, build a solution tailored to a specific headset, which is, it's got its pros and cons, but um, I think a lot of people like with the mind piano thing, they could take the code and adapt to specific headsets very easily. Mm-hmm. Right. So they wear the headset and they kind of focus on what they want to play or they think about what they want to play? Are they given a prompt to look at? Yes. So, so I'll explain how the piano actually works. So the piano works by, you actually look at a target on the screen and the, uh, your 
in your peripherals, you're seeing the piano and there's a, a key selected as you focus on the target and moves across the piano. And when you blink your eyes with that one, it plays the note and you can hold your eyes down and adjust your focus up and down and actually play a run as well. You can go through and play specific notes on the keyboard. Wow. The core with the idea is actually figuring out the logic of how to actually implement something like that, which is that process I just kind of described to you. So that's the kind of the core of what makes the idea is that logic. And that's the same sort of thing that comes down to my patent pending plan as well. It's the logic of the steps. In that case, we're using focus. We're using focus in a very different way. We're not, you know, the, a lot of people in the industry were building keyboards like, you know, think through Apple and it would type Apple. But then you're talking about word, a dictionary of thousands of words. It's just not an effective approach and requires a lot of training time, which can't properly be implemented on the a commercial scale, or even needs implanted senses to get an update and make sense of specific words. Mm-hmm. So can you share some of your other innovations related to accessible technology? For sure. I think one really cool one, you should see it now, Google Maps. I designed a more accessible GPS app. Basically, uh, it was a hackathon project where I... Well, I always had conversations with my mom where I would talk through directions where she would give me directions based off of navigating visually. And every single GPS app would be turn right in 500 feet, turn left in so-and-so street name. And I would always struggle with them or get overwhelmed. But I would have an easier time when my mom would talk through directions with me visually. And I kind of had conversations. That's a really good thing with the entrepreneurship process is doing those interviews, having those conversations. That's a great thing, um, I think, for anyone who's building disability tech is to talk to specific people and have those conversations and understand different perspectives. And I realize it's a large part along gender lines. Uh, a large portion of female politicians thinks through directions visually. In addition, there's a lot of people who find that format of visual directions more accessible. So basically, I built a prototype of it that showed off the technology where it could give directions and navigate visually, which I think was really interesting to see and see in an action where we basically figure out what's at a specific street corner and give you directions based off the landmarks it sees. Yeah. Okay, so that's what you mean by visually, because I, I did notice that. Yeah, so turn right at like CVS, turn right at the 7-Eleven. Uh-huh. So those sort of directions, that was in none of the apps. None of the apps had that before this existed. Um, so that was featured in the MIT Technology Review alongside their YouTube's captioning system. And this kind of actually pushed me a little bit towards my, my patterns for my later ideas, because after it was featured in the MIT Technology Review, a couple months later... Google implemented it into Google Maps. I just kind of took it, but it's all right. So you didn't get any credit for it? No, I mean, there was other articles that came out after kind of calling them out, but it's, it's, uh, it's whatever. It's successfully tech. I think it's for the greater good, so. Wow. But it was the kind of that paper trail that I created first. And someone actually from that event was like, oh, did you, I saw this in Google Maps after it was, just, it was a very interesting sort of timeline of things. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that pushed me more towards um, patents. Actually, another patent that was granted. I actually I work in research and development right now as well in the defense space. Okay. What projects are you currently working on? I work in the space sector, but I, I can't really talk about my projects. <laughs> um, but I just can say I, I specialize in the same sort of AI, machine learning, computer vision. And I kind of get to be someone who gets to create the same sort of stuff. I'm leading a team of engineers 
I've done some really exciting work. Mm-hmm. Cool. So your art you do on the side, well, it actually kind of plays into each other. It's become a career. Okay. Yeah. And I do art shows and galleries and museums. I actually have two different art events, October 1st. They're doing the first accessible art festival in Florida. So I'm going to have some piece of that. But I'm also doing an art in the park. And I have a gallery that shows my work in Los Angeles as well. So I, I, you know, I've kind of made a career out of it, which is nice. Yeah. And the same sort of AI that I specialize in with as an engineer, as an artist, it's all sort of connected, go back and forth. So I think as I get good with one, it kind of improves my skills with the other. It kind of, you know, it's, it's just continuous growth because they're all, to me, very connected. Mm-hmm. And what do you want people to take away from your art? I think it's, it's nice when I can do pieces that represent specific groups. I think it's also, I, I love to promote the art therapy experience, you know, t- capturing a narrative through art and processing it, I think is very healing. I also like to, I think, represent, you know, artists with disabilities being an artist on the autism spectrum. And I think, you know, there's a lot I can do with that as well. I think also I want to encourage people to pursue STEM programming and incorporate some of these advanced technologies into art as well. Mm-hmm. So Austin, one of the things that you created was a sensory overload simulator. Right. That was a quick hackathon project. I think actually won an award as well, where it was actually kind of like, you know how when you do those captures where it kind of like, you have to type in a specific thing or like find the cars, you know how they get a little bit overwhelming, mm-hmm. some people. So I kind of tried to create almost an autism version of that a capture that kind of can, you know, do some of those challenges, but kind of also kind of a, an authentication method and simulate some of those autism experiences from a security context, which is interesting, where I was actually able to, you know, find a face in a crowd of people, things like that, things that were typically things that, you know, someone on autism spectrum is very familiar with is challenging, giving them to the general population as challenge to kind of authenticate and something that would be hard for an AI to do, have some of those advanced sort of social skills that would be able to authenticate a human. Right. So it's putting people in the shoes of an autistic person that might be going through some kind of sensory overload. What were some of the responses that you got I don't think that was one I ever released, but I think it was one I kind of showed off and got some really good feedback that it brought at the event and actually won an award for it at the event, which was nice. But yeah, I've done some other work later on in the authentication space. That was actually my the other patent that was granted. This was one of my first projects in the authentication space. My later project, that was actually one where I was able to let people log in to actually discriminate against deep fakes where it's actually a simulation of a person, not a lot of the men. Basically, it lets you you read a paragraph with your eyes and it would let you into a device, basically. Hmm. So I would like, so if I see like the, uh, like a, a, a sentence on the screen, I would read it and the way my eyes would move reading it, I'd be able to authenticate me into the device. Oh, okay. I see. So that was the way that you were allowed access. Yeah. And what's really interesting about reading is there's a disconnect where 
as you're reading, if you're reading with an email or something, your eyes are slowly moving across the page. And it looks like to you from your perspective, they're slowly moving across. But the reality is your eyes are making short bursts of movement, your brain's stitching it together into this slow progression across through the disconnect between what people are perceiving, what their eyes are actually doing, which is what makes it really interesting. We're able to get two authentications as one, one's from the perception and one from the actual movements of the eye. Mm. Yeah, that is really interesting. So related to advocacy, what are some things about autism that you want to kind of educate people about? Like maybe if there are some misconceptions or stigmas that you want to break, what could those be? For sure. I think, you know, my own experience made me very empathetic. I'm very aware that that empathy is a skill that not all people on the autism spectrum are able to fully process through. So I think that, you know, being aware of the perspectives I think uh, art can dealing with also can help with patients and help you through doing things at your own pace, I think is a really important thing for advocacy. But also, I think, you know, there's no rush for people to tell their story. I think art can kind of let you slowly get to know someone and bridge social divides beyond language, beyond communication. Art's kind of a universal language, which I think is really interesting as well, especially for advocacy. Yeah, definitely. And people can have their own interpretations of it, obviously, because it is subjective. For sure, for sure. I think and also not trying to, you know, learning to not force your own interpretation onto other people, I think is really important as well. Hmm. Okay. Where do you get your inspiration from? I guess like if you're sitting down and you're going to start working on something, where do you turn to? I think that's another interesting thing. I think it goes back to that sort of social disconnect that I was touching on before with the ideas and things like that, where I don't really draw inspiration places. I kind of, you know, maybe collect a lot of ideas, but kind of just all of a sudden see it in my head or have a dream, and then I'm able to sort of recreate it where it's not, I don't go out seeking things. I kind of have the idea first or the image first, and then I create. I kind of, you know, I can see the technology and then I'll go and learn the skills to actually build it for real, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's kind of idea first versus inspiration first. Uh Uh-huh. Right. I guess, I mean, every artist is different and they might have different styles and techniques with different pieces they do, but you could maybe have a blank sheet and then just see where the paintbrush takes you or start with a chord progression and then see where the lyrics go. For sure. I think also... There's so many different mediums. Like I think art is one of those things where you don't be afraid to mix mediums. Not the great thing about learning, and I think you know, at least with art, you know, being inspired by different other artists, which kind of goes back to my use of AI, is you're able to develop your own sort of signature style by borrowing elements from artists that inspire you. So I think that's also I've sort of found my signature, but it took me many, many years to get to that point. And that a lot of experimentation and a lot of different things I tried and a lot of artists haven't really found that yet. So I think it's, you know, that experimentation phase, don't take it for granted because it's, I think it's really crucial as well. Yeah. Have you ever collaborated with musicians? I want to. I, you know, I've been doing some pieces recently, some video pieces that kind of do beats to different, you know, and animate to different music tracks, which has been interesting but I don't really know as many musicians. (laughs) Okay, Austin, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to other autistic artists? First of all, I just want to say also, don't be afraid to reach out on Instagram if you want to learn about the art, you want to collaborate. 
but I think that's the other thing, you know, reach out to people that inspire you, reach out to other artists, learn from them, try and, you know, don't be afraid to collaborate, don't be afraid to take risks. There's a really strong community, especially uh, in the disability community. There's so many people you can reach out to and so many resources. And I think, you know, using that community to its fullest can be to be to your benefit. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Thank you, Austin. I'll be sure to put a link to your website and your social media in our show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. When I first saw Austin's art, I was mesmerized by the intricate colors and shapes. He has a way of evoking emotion through his pieces that will leave the viewer in a trance. I encourage you to check out his Instagram at BocaOS to have a look for yourself. Like Austin, are you a self-advocate wanting to connect with other autistic people? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online global autism community to collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.